Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You know who I am. You know who he is. The character of the country is on the ballot. Our character is on the ballot. Look at us closely. You were vice president along with Obama as your president, your leader, for eight years. Why didn't you get it done? Because you're all talk and no action, Jim. We got a lot of it done. He pours fuel on every single racist fire. I'm the least racist person in this room. I have not taken a penny from any foreign source ever in my life. Would you close down the oil industry? I would transition from the oil industry, yes. You have not released a single solitary year of your tax return. What are you hiding? What did I pay? They said, sir, you prepaid tens of millions of dollars. I prepaid my tax. I take full responsibility. It's not my fault that it came here. He says that we're, uh, you know, we're learning to live with it. People are learning to die with it. Let's get off this China thing. And then he looks, the family, around the table, everything. Just a typical politician. Their kids were ripped from their arms and separated. And now they cannot find over 500 sets of those parents. And those kids are alone. Nowhere to go. They are so well taken care of. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. With the second and final debate behind them, President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden are in the final stretch of a campaign that well, feels like it's been going on for about 100 years. It's also a campaign that, despite all of the incredible events that have occurred during it, a pandemic, an uprising for racial justice, an impeachment, an economic crisis, it's been relatively stable. Joe Biden has been leading Donald Trump since the beginning of the year. Can Donald Trump do anything in these last few days to close this gap? Joining me to discuss all of this is Joel Payne, a Democratic strategist and host of the podcast Here Comes the Pain, and Patrick Ruffini, a Republican pollster and political strategist. Joel, Patrick, welcome. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. Patrick, I'm going to start with you, but Joel, you're going to weigh in too on the debate and whether or... First of all, I guess your takeaways from it and whether you think that this is something that could have an impact here in these last final days. Well, I think that debate was something approaching normal. Of course, that was a low bar after the first debate. Um, Now, look, is this going to be the singular event that helps Donald Trump make up all the ground that he needs to make up in the next um, 11 days? Probably not. Could it be the event uh, that gets him out of, um, you know, the nine to 10 point polling deficit um, that he's been in and gets uh, gets that number back to, let's say, a more manageable six to seven points where which has been that long term average, as you mentioned, this race has been very stable. Um, If he can do that, that will certainly be very helpful to a lot of Republicans uh, running down ballot, um, which is really the main point of suspense, I think, that we uh, probably still have in this election. Who's going to control the Senate? Um, You know, are, I mean, there's not much doubt about who's going to control the House, but, um, you know, what are gains there, uh, you know, going to look like either way? Um, So I think he um, didn't, um, you know, do what he needed to do from the standpoint of completely changing the trajectory of this race. Um, But he may have solidified his base. He may have 
I think, prevented people from just giving up, which is, you know, where we were probably a week or two ago. Yeah, Joel, what, I'm curious what you think about that, because Patrick's right. We, uh, we talked to a lot of Republicans after that very first debate, and there was a lot of panic in their voice that the bottom was going to drop out, that not only were they going to lose the Senate, but they could lose many more seats than they had expected in the Senate. So do you think that coming this close to the election, Donald Trump's debate performance at least helps make that floor a little more solid for Republicans? I think that's certainly where my mind is after that recent debate. And look, um, this race was trending towards Reagan Mondale, 84, was trending towards Obama McCain, 08. Now I think it's a little bit closer to like Obama Romney, which is competitive, right? It's not a complete wipeout, but it's something where Republicans, at least those down ballot, have something to run with Donald Trump with, right? I mean, what we were hearing over the last uh, couple of weeks before that debate was Republicans talking about distancing themselves from Trump, people like Ben Sass and John Cornyn putting a lot of space between themselves and the president. I think after that debate, I think there are things from from what the president said and his rhetorical inflections and the defense of kind of Republican orthodoxy that were acceptable and that were palatable to the base. I think overall, both candidates were better. I think Donald Trump needed Joe Biden to be a catastrophe. He needed Joe Biden to be a disaster. And he wasn't. So overall, the trajectory of the race didn't change. But I do think that Trump probably did himself some favors in consolidating maybe some soft Republican support. So, Joel, tell me what you think Joe Biden needs to do in these final days. You know, during the debate, it struck me that he wasn't just playing prevent defense. He was actually on offense for a good portion of that debate. Is that what you're expecting to see from him in these next few days? I would expect that the vice president and his team are going to take nothing for granted, even though it's pretty apparent from the public polls and just the overall posture of the race that he is ahead by whatever standards we use to measure ahead or behind before actual votes are, are counted, per se. Um, he's certainly ahead, but I don't think he is going to you know, play kind of prevent defense, as you say. I think he's going to be very um, proactive. Um, I think there are three words I think about when I think about where the former vice president's team is right now. It's enthusiasm, it's organization, and it's turnout. And so spike enthusiasm, get people excited, and, and also just really helping those down ballot. Because what's going to be important for Joe Biden is not just winning. It's also bringing a lot of Democrats with him. So people like Barbara Ballier in Kansas, maybe helping her out. People like John Ossoff in Georgia, Raphael Warnock in Georgia, Cal Cunningham in North Carolina, making sure that the organization is in place so that not only does Joe Biden win, but that he drags a lot of Democrats over the finish line with him. Well, that's right, Joel. And he has to that, that would mean that that Biden would need to do better in some of these red states that he doesn't necessarily need to win to get to the Electoral College. So that's the question is, does he spend more time and resources in Iowa or does he just focus intently on go to Pennsylvania, get Arizona, get Florida? The you know don't don't spend your time or energy in these last few days doing anything other than ensuring that you win. I think you ensure that you win. I think what when these candidates and campaigns get in trouble is when they maybe their eyes get a little bigger than their stomach and they try to be a little bit too. Uh, much focused on a 50-state strategy as opposed to a battleground strategy. Mm. We know Hillary Clinton faltered in some of those battleground states last time because Trump, frankly, outworked her in some of those states. I don't think the Biden folks are going to let that happen this time. Patrick, how do you think Republicans are preparing for a potential post-Trump White House and even a Democratic majority in the Senate? 
I find that, you know, after these sort these transitions of power that, um, uh, you know, that people uh, typically focus on less of the, you know, hand wringing about, you know, what happened in the election that maybe lasts a, a few weeks. Um, and it really becomes about um, opposing the, um, you know, incumbent White House. Um, and the debate moves on pretty quickly. We certainly saw that within a few weeks of Obama taking office, right? Um, that Republicans seem to have their mojo back. Um, you know, you had those Tea Party rallies emerge just a few weeks after Obama became president, winning um, a landslide uh, election. And that set them up for a very good midterm election um, two years hence. And Patrick, I mean, obviously, there are folks in Congress, sitting members of Congress right now who are trying to position themselves, thinking about a a world where Trump's not in the White House. But is your expectation the same as mine, which is Donald Trump's not going to go into the background? I mean, he, he is still going to be an active force in politics and will still have a tremendous amount of influence. So so talk a little bit about that. Like, how does the party kind of move on to, to finding, you know, new leaders and a new nominee in 2024 with the president still so active and looming uh, around uh, every corner? You're right in that that, that he is a com- going to be and would be a complete wild card, uh, you know, in, in a way that past, you know, former presidents have, have not been. And we can't really predict exactly, mm-hmm. um, you know, what he will do. I think that, you know, there's one school of thought that says he's kind of done with this, <laughs> doesn't want to be president anymore, um, that, you know, didn't, it, you know, didn't enjoy. Obviously, I think he will comment. But short of him throwing his hat in the ring for another campaign in 2024, trying to, you know, make a comeback, uh, you know, I think the focus overwhelmingly should shift to a new generation of leaders. You have Nikki Haley, you have Tim Scott, you have, you know, Mike Pence would certainly make a strong, um, you know, a, you know, will make a strong entry if, uh, you know, if he chooses to run. Um, so I think the focus is um, going to in- invariably shift to that next generation. And, um, you know, the question is who among that can capture that same sort of uh, that, that, you know, that same undeniable sense of energy that uh, Trump did certainly bring in 2016 um, to the primary. I mean, uh, to the primary campaign steamrolled through 16 candidates. Um, so, uh, you know, the question is, um, you know, really like, you know, if there is a Trump heir, who will that be? But I think it's going to be someone from a new generation rather than Trump himself. Joel, let's talk about the, on the other side. So play out the hypotheticals for Democrats. Should Biden win? How does Biden work? Even if you have a Democratic Senate, how does he, Joe Biden, that is, work with Republicans? I mean, he has has premised his entire campaign about the unity message and the bipartisan message. I mean, how realistic is that? Well, I think it's certainly realistic in the vice president's mind. And should he win, I think the things that I would be looking out for are the type of people that he surround himself with. If you remember back in 2008 and 2009, when Barack Obama won and in his transition, you could kind of look at the signaling around who did he pick as his chief of staff? who were um, folks who were kind of his main liaisons in Congress, right? People like the Dick Durbins of the world who you knew were going to guide him. He had Rahm Emanuel as his chief of staff. So you you knew you had somebody who was deeply rooted in kind of 
deal making on Capitol Hill. So that actually dictated what people were expecting. I think a lot of the talk now about Biden is, well, who would his chief of staff be? Is it someone like a Ron Klain? Is it someone like a Steve Reschetti? Is it someone like a Kareem Jean-Pierre? I think all of those types of picks might have that kind of um, heft with it in terms of the type of governing philosophy that a Biden White House would have. I also think it really just depends on where the country is at the moment that Joe Biden would hypothetically take office. I actually think it's going to be very similar to what uh, Barack Obama faced in 2008. You had a crisis then. There was a crisis moment where you couldn't come in and just do what you wanted to do to help make the base happy. You had things that had to happen around stimulus at that point. Well, guess what? Joe Biden, should he be elected, is going to have another situation where probably more stimulus is going to be needed to reinvigorate the economy. Um, you're probably going to have to do um, some some kind of common sense things that are going to require some bipartisan comedy. So I, I think that the situation will dictate what Biden does. But I also think there will be some tea leave reading of the type of people that Biden surrounds himself with. And I think that will also dictate mm. the type of government that Joe Biden will run. So then let's talk about that next piece. You know, there obviously this is something that the president has talked a lot about Republicans expect to happen, which is there's going to be some sort of liberal progressive uh, uprising and that Biden is going to have no choice but to accede to their policy positions. What do you make of that? Yeah, this is this is, by the way, if you want to get me, I'm, I'm like a like an old man at the Thanksgiving table about this. <laughs> this. This is the thing that I think everybody will realize, really, if Joe, if Joe Biden should win, but also if Joe Biden loses the progressive wing of the Democratic Party feels like, OK, we kind of took our medicine. We decided to kind of play along and be a part of the coalition. And you've even seen little fissures that have been popping up over the last couple of weeks. Remember that story in The Washington Post? about Bernie Sanders not being happy with Joe Biden kind of throwing mm -hmm. him under the bus a little bit on the campaign trail. Those are the little ticks that I'm starting to see. And after the election, I'm telling you, there is going to be a very fierce battle for the soul of the Democratic Party. And it will dictate everything from what comes first in a Congress. We talked a little bit about, you know, the things that might have to come first. But, you know, um, the, a buzzword du jour on the, on the left progressive wing of the party is democracy reform. That means things like the filibuster, um, you know, we we saw, by the way, a test case of that with Dianne Feinstein in the Comey Barrett hearings right. over the last few weeks where uh, Dianne Feinstein got in trouble with the left of the party because she was too complimentary to Lindsey Graham. That's kind of a, almost like a, a weather balloon of kind of what to expect next year. The progressive wing of the party is going to hold Biden accountable and they are going to want a real seat at the table in terms of how to govern, what comes first and what are the priority issues that the party gets behind. And And by the way, whether the remedies that a Chuck Schumer Senate potentially, if Chuck Schumer, if, if the Democrats were to say, take the Senate, what remedies a Chuck Schumer Senate or a Nancy Pelosi House might put forward to address some of the uh, hot issues that we'll be dealing with. So this is this is a big issue. And I can just tell you someone who's um, been a part of a lot of conversations on the on the left and in the mainstream of the party. This is a hot issue. And regardless of a Biden win or lose scenario, I think this will be one of the dominant stories of kind of that interregnum period between the election and inauguration day. Thank you both, Patrick, Joel, for bringing your insights here. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much.
It's been six months since the $2 trillion CARES Act was signed into law and aid was made available to families and businesses that have been struggling. Since March, millions of Americans have lost their jobs, and as a result of the lack of aid, more Americans are now living in poverty. So what are lawmakers saying about the prospects for a deal? Well, it's some pretty mixed messages. The talks are talking. That's how I would put it. We've made progress in this regard, uh, but we're still we're still yeah. not there. But we can be. Now, not every Republican agrees with me, but they will. But I want to do it even bigger than the Democrats. Those checks are not a part of this package. He should have been, instead of in a sand trap in his golf course, he should have been negotiating with Nancy Pelosi and the rest of the Democrats and Republicans. Uh, we got, what, 12 days left or something. So, yeah, that's true. The clock is ticking. And while negotiations between Speaker Pelosi and Secretary of the Treasury Steve Mnuchin have plugged on for some time, conflicting guidance from the White House and the leader of the Senate means it's unlikely a deal will come together ahead of Election Day. So to talk about the latest on the stimulus talks and what it could mean if a package comes together after the election, we called up Emily Cochran, congressional reporter at The New York Times. I wish I could predict. I wish I could say I could guarantee when we know that there's going to there, there's going to be a deal there's just a lot of political factors that have hampered a deal thus far that just won't go away until november 3rd a lot of the calculations that you are seeing are not just how best to help the american people right now during the pandemic but what is going to happen on november 3rd There's a lot of calculations among the Republicans in terms of how best to satisfy their base. What does the Republican Party stand for, particularly if President Trump loses? There's also calculations among the Democrats. Do you want to help President Trump right before the election by agreeing to a deal with him? Speaker Pelosi and Secretary Mnuchin are going through the motions. They have talked almost every single day for the last couple of weeks. They they say they're optimistic, they are trying, but there is a lot of groundwork that needs to be done before there is a bill on the president's desk. Emily, that's such a good point, because what what you seem to be saying here is that what's holding up these talks and, and where the sticking points are is much more political than it is substantive. Or are there real substantive things? I mean, we hear the president saying over and over again, don't want this money going to Democratic-run cities that are terrible. And McConnell saying we need liability protections or else businesses won't reopen. They're worried about getting sued. So can you walk us through that? How much of this is substance and how much of this is politics? It's a combination of both, quite frankly. Some of the biggest outstanding policy issues, as you mentioned, the Democratic push to give billions of dollars to state and local governments, which have seen revenues drop as a result of the pandemic, a Republican demand for liability protections, which some Democrats have said are a non-starter, the Democratic push for a national testing strategy. These are policy issues that have long hampered a deal. Since May, when the House first passed their offer for for an ultimate deal. But there are also some political calculations. We're seeing the fiscal hawks really take a stand in the Republican Party. And sometimes in the past, they've been okay with spending. We saw that actually with the last big stimulus bill, $2.2 trillion, and it was a unanimous vote in the Senate. Now you're seeing those, those fiscal hawks come out and voice concerns about spending a lot of taxpayer money, 
borrowing more money in a way that they weren't before. And part of that is because Republicans do have a fiscally conservative base and they want to please that base. They're keeping those folks in mind. And you are hearing that a lot more from people who aren't necessarily about to or are currently facing voters in the November election. What about Democrats, though? I would assume, though, that there are a lot of Democrats uh, running for re-election who would like to be able to go home and tell their constituents they delivered money um, for them, especially those who are really struggling at this time. Why isn't there more pressure on Pelosi to just get something passed, whether it is the, the most perfect bill or not? There is certainly a lot of pressure on Pelosi from her moderates. Uh, that's why she ended up putting a second version. They called it, the, the original bill was called Heroes. They called the second one Heroes 2.0. She put that on the floor earlier this month as a way of saying, look, we're compromising. We came down from $3.4 trillion to $2.4 trillion, which is a, it's a huge sum of money. And, and sh- as a way of showing that they were compromising. They were trying to, in good faith to reach a deal. You still had some moderates vote against that legislation because they said it needed to be bipartisan. They wanted to see a deal with the secretary. It helps that Speaker Pelosi is in the room with Secretary Mnuchin, even after the president tweeted and said he had asked negotiators to stop all talks until after election day. She kept talking to the secretary and they They keep saying that they have made progress and they are moving closer together. So she is going publicly. She's going through the motions. And so is the secretary of trying to reach an agreement. There's not much time before the election. And we do know that post-election, there is the potential that you could have a a lame duck session. In other words, the time between when the election ends and the new Congress comes in. What would a potential stimulus bill look like? if it were crafted in that time? And and do you think that's even possible? Like, I guess what we're looking for is at the end of the year, what could people who really are hurting right now expect to get? Again, I really wish I could give some sort of guarantee <laughs> or some sort of outline, but really how November 3rd unfolds, how the election unfolds, will shape the lame duck in ways that I just can't predict right now. Mm. You know, if you if you have a Senate who's a Republican Senate looking at at a new majority, a Democratic majority in January, that's going to change some of the priorities that they have. And if President Trump is outgoing as opposed to preparing for a second term, does he want to pass a deal that could help Biden, if he takes office in January, this all sounds very callous and very political, but the, and it's a shame that we talk about the political factors as opposed to just the cut and dry. People are hurting and need relief, but those political factors have shaped the conversation so far, and it's not going to happen in a vacuum come November. Emily Cochran, thank you so much for helping us navigate this and good luck to you on your continuing challenge in doing so. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Emily Cochran is a congressional reporter at The New York Times. For so many Black people, The Wiz feels like home. home. The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing. And as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. 
I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to the Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Donald Trump won Wisconsin in 2016 by just over 22,000 votes. The first Republican to win the Badger State since 1984. So how do you do it? Some blame Hillary Clinton for failing to show up there during the general election. Others point to Trump's success in turning out previously disengaged voters in small town and rural parts of the state. And then there was the lack of enthusiasm for Clinton in Milwaukee, especially among black voters. For the last couple of years, I've been checking in with Congresswoman Gwen Moore, who represents the city of Milwaukee in Congress, on how Democrats plan to reach out to black voters, especially young voters, in 2020. With early voting starting this week, I thought it would be a great idea to check back in with Congresswoman Moore one last time before Election Day. Well, unfortunately, in 2016, we saw a drop off in uh, certain wards in the city of Milwaukee, as much as I think 43 percent drop off. We saw only 2.6 million absentee ballots cast in Wisconsin uh, in all of 2016. And we've already had um, hit the one million mark. An early vote just started on the 20th of October. Uh, We had on the first day of early vote, 75,000 people show up at 13 different sites. We've got drop boxes at uh, 13 locations. Even though the Republicans, you know, lopped off a couple of weeks of early vote once they, during their lame duck session after they lost the gubernatorial race in 2018, we've doubled down on our efforts to to make sure people can vote. And of course, you know, we can't forget what happened in April. And so I think people are doing a couple of things. They're masking up and uh, voting by mail, hybrid ways of voting. I did a hybrid form. I, I uh, got my absentee ballot in the mail and then dropped it off at a drop box. Why did you choose to do it that way rather than drop it in the mailbox? My polling site, literally, I just walked through the alley and there it is. And there was a drop box. There's a a voting drop box. It was closer to me than any post office or blue mailbox that I could go to. And also, uh, when I think about the target group of people that we're going after in Wisconsin, you know, those first time voters, those infrequent voters, the millennials, some of the millennials younger millennials, some of the millennials that really rescued us in 2018 and turned this state blue. You know, we think about those iffy voters, those people who may choose to vote third party or choose to ride this this out. When we think about the younger voters, they don't mail anything. They do text, they do emails. And so I think You know, many of them, I've urged many of them to use the hybrid form. Go on and get the doggone thing in the mailbox, and then you can use any number. And then that just expands your opportunity to drop it off. So, Congresswoman, um, we talked a couple of years ago about Wisconsin and Wisconsin in the future. And we looked back at 2016, and you had one of the more memorable quotes, I think, that I've gotten from a member of Congress, which was when I when I asked you what it was like in Milwaukee in 2016, you said something like, it was so quiet here, you know, the enthusiasm was so low for Democrats that you could hear a mouse ping on a cotton. Mouse. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> right. So uh, where's that mouse now? I can tell you that we have really been very competitive in messaging. 
I think that next to George Washington, Hillary Clinton was just the most prepared candidate that this country had ever seen. And unfortunately, she had very high unlikables, you know, consistent with uh, how people felt about Donald Trump. And so there wasn't much activity. And then her campaign, not her, her campaign calculated that they would try to expand the map in ways that we're trying to do now. And so there wasn't a lot of, there weren't resources put into our community. I mean, we got on that very, very early and made sure that the the DNC and the Biden campaign put a spotlight on Wisconsin. Of course, our convention was upended, but we are still very proud that we provided the leadership for the first ever virtual convention. And I think we did an excellent job. All of the trains were running out of Milwaukee. All those screens you saw and that marvelous roll call you know, it became the basis for the kind of values that we wanted to spread here, making sure that we, number one, target the group of voters that are most critical in this particular state, which is that 18 to 29 year old cohort, and making sure that we had surrogates, you know, do radio, do other sort of Zoom events uh, that appeal to, to that uh, to, to that other group. And to make sure we did a lot of pushback against the President Trump and his surrogates constantly coming to Wisconsin, of course, trying to stoke racial division, start a civil war in Kenosha. Well, I wonder what you're hearing from these younger voters, because back in 2016, what we heard from many of them, especially younger African-American voters, younger African-American men especially, was was a level of cynicism and frustration about politics in general. And, and they certainly weren't feeling particularly connected to Hillary Clinton. We'd been hearing a little bit of that now and that there's not the same level of enthusiasm for Biden as a lot of Democrats would hope that they would see from younger voters of color. So what, what are you seeing and hearing? You know, you're, you're not trying to find the love of your life. You're trying to find a president. You know, what I, what I say to younger people is that I really get your grievances. I mean, you've been marching all year long, um, even in the face of COVID for justice, after we saw the horrific deaths of folks like Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. It, you, you are, you know, you want something done right now about climate action, gun violence, income inequality is, is, is really at a, a historic level. Uh, that's dangerous for our democracy. I get it that you want change. Why would you now disarm at a point in time when just in 2019, the Gen Xers, the millennials, the Gen Zs, you have finally surpassed the baby boomers in terms of total population and you and now the agency and the decision making is in your hands. This is not the time to disarm. You have the power now. And when you look at consequential activities of our government, you know, just as an example, the Supreme Court picks, you know, I'm 69, Amy. I mean, I've had Justice Blackman and Justice Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. These are going to be just judges that you're going to have for the rest of your life. And, you know, I told my granddaughter, I mean, it's not even about preserving your right to have an abortion. How about your birth control, for God's sake? 
Um, you know, what, what Republicans couldn't accomplish legislatively. I mean, they, you know, 70 times, 70 times, I stopped counting the times that they voted to try to undermine the Affordable Care Act. I lost count. So I can't even say that's that you, that's a, an exact number. It's 70 or more. And when you look at the administrative things that they've done to try to undermine it, that just piles on. Congresswoman Gwen Moore represents Wisconsin's 4th Congressional District. So after checking in on Milwaukee, I wanted to get a better understanding of where things stand statewide. Polls have shown Biden with a narrow lead in the state, but can early voting numbers tell us anything about which candidate has the upper hand going into these final days? No one covers Wisconsin politics and especially voting patterns and behaviors like Craig Gilbert, who's the Washington bureau chief for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. So I called him up and started by asking him what voter turnout looks like so far. We've had more than a million people vote in Wisconsin, which is, um, you know, we're, we're past well past one third and approaching 40 percent of the total turnout in 2016. This is a sea change from any previous fall election where voting by mail was pretty much pretty trivial. I mean, five or six percent of the vote Um, and voting early in person was more substantial, but still, you know, 15 or 20 percent of the vote. Um, So this doesn't look like anything we've seen before. Um, we're getting, you know, some patterns in the early voting and the absentee voting. Um, we've certainly seen with respect to voting by mail that the communities that are doing that at the highest rates are basically, you know, very democratic suburbs of Milwaukee and Madison with a lot of college educated voters, places where, you know, Donald Trump did really badly last time and will do really badly this time. You know, the question always when we look at this early vote is, okay, so are are these people that were likely to come out and vote anyway? Or do we think that there are new people that are coming out and voting early or sending in ballots that wouldn't have done so (laughs) otherwise? Yeah. You know, I think there's some indication that parts of the Democratic coalition are very mobilized. I talked about kind of college educated white voters. And, you know, we're seeing that these people could not wait to vote. But we're also seeing some indication that parts of the Republican coalition are also really mobilized. You know, we, we've just had a few days of early in-person voting. It started this past week. But if you look at the places that have the highest rates of in-person early voting, it's a different group. It's a more Republican group. It's, it's the, you know, it's the famous Republican counties like Ozaki and Waukesha and Washington. Um, it's, you know, small Republican communities around the state. And so what I take away from that is these are places where people were anxious to vote, but they didn't want to vote by mail. So at the first opportunity to vote in person, they did. And again, that's a little bit of a change because in the past, you know, in-person early voting has been a more democratic phenomenon in Wisconsin. But in this case, a lot of those people and those communities have already, you know, heavily voted by mail. And what about the city of Milwaukee? Uh, obviously, in 2016, the there was a lot of uh, hand-wringing by Democrats after that election about lower turnout in Milwaukee and wondering if what you're hearing, seeing, whether it's in the early vote or other indications about what what that turnout could look like. Yeah, so the city of Milwaukee 
is, has cast the most early votes, early in-person votes, which is not surprising. Uh, it's the biggest city in the state. Um, they are doing pretty well, I would say, overall in terms of the percentage. Um, if you compare, you know, the percentage of uh, turn 2016 turnout that we've seen in the city of Milwaukee, it's not Madison, which, you know, Madison is a, is a high bar. Uh, Madison is such a political city. And um, it's, you know, it's kind of Madison and the suburbs around Madison are sort of leading the way. And they'll be, you know, they'll be leading the way in terms of turnout overall. But um, I would say that early vote is, is pretty respectable in the city of Milwaukee. It's bigger in in some of the suburbs north of Milwaukee. Um, but Milwaukee also, we saw in the, in the spring election, you know, tends to come in a little bit later. Um, so we've got two weeks to go and, and, you know, we're going to have to wait and see what the full picture is, um, for the city of Milwaukee. In our previous conversations, we've talked about, you know, the, the challenges for both Biden and, and Trump, and a lot of it centers on just what kind of turnout can, uh, President Trump get from that small town rural, um, part of Wisconsin or in the Western part of Wisconsin, um, and we'd been seeing in polls that he seemed to be lagging uh, somewhat there. And I'm wondering what you think of where he is now at, at, with those voters and and if there are any signs, whether it's in polling or what you're hearing from around the state on, on what your expectations are. So I think that he's got two challenges. One is to do as well or better in percentage terms in those communities because they are you know, a smaller and smaller share of the overall electorate. You know, his strength in many cases has been in parts of the state that aren't growing. If you sort of assume, like many of us do, that there are going to be parts of the state, other parts of the state where he does worse than he did in 2016, he's got to really exceed his performance in some of these places. And he's also got to try to bring out more voters. I mean, he did that in 2016, but I think on top of what he did in 2016, his challenge is to, you know, get some of those people in those communities who did not even vote in 2016 and are not habitual voters to come out. Now, we don't know. We don't really have a lot of information about that second point. I mean, some of these places are places that have not been voting uh, absentee and early at a high rate, but you wouldn't necessarily expect that. You'd expect most of the people in these communities, more rural communities, to vote in person on Election Day. And the polling, you know, has kind of suggested that it's going to be a challenge for him to get the same numbers out of some of these regions of the state that were so extraordinary in 2016. You know, I was just looking at some of the past voting trends in the state and, you know, everything has changed so quickly that we sort of forget what the old world looked like. But, you know, before the Trump election, the rural areas of Wisconsin were less Republican than the suburban areas of Wisconsin. They were incredibly competitive, and that really changed dramatically in 2016, and it continued to be, you know, that every, you know, it, we saw it in 2018 to a certain extent. We're seeing it in the polling now where, you know, the rural areas, the small towns are considerably more Republican the way they're performing than the suburbs. And so he's got part of that is, you know, the Republican coalition shifting to small towns and and these lightly populated parts of the state just surging for Republicans, but part of it is losing ground in the suburbs as well. Craig Gilbert is the Washington bureau chief for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. 
best way to understand any election is to see it through the eyes of as many different kinds of voters as possible. Because you know what? There's no such thing as an average voter. My colleague Tanzina Vega, host of The Takeaway, has been doing this too. So I invited her on the show this week to share some of her observations. Hi, Tanzina. Hi, Amy. How are you? Well, I am good. And I have enjoyed listening to your show go through uh, your series called Avotar, looking at Latino voters in the 2020 election. And you've been doing this now for almost a month. What are some of your biggest takeaways from the conversations you've been having? I guess that one of the biggest takeaways is that this idea that this is a quote unquote sleeping giant vote. And you know, we've heard that for so many decades, every political cycle, you know, it's like, it will Latinos vote? Will they not? Will we awaken the sleeping giant? And there is no sleeping giant. Um, this community, the part of the reason why we're approaching it the way we are is because there's so many different faces and sides to the quote-unquote Latino vote, that it would be unfair to approach this with that sort of lens, you know. So we decided to break it apart. And so far, we've talked to Puerto Rican voters. We've talked about Cuban-American voters and Venezuelan voters. And we talked to young Latino voters uh, in particular who are now um, represent a pretty significant part of the Latino electorate. And uh, if they turn out to the polls, it could be something to to see how strong that vote tends to be. But I think the through line here is really that there isn't a through line, that when we say Latinos in the United States, that could mean somebody who's, uh, you know, recent immigrant, that could mean somebody who's been here for eight generations, you know, and there are very different political views, uh, depending on who you talk to and where they are in the country. Well, I thought it was really interesting in your conversations you had with younger voters. Um, remember, I think this is when people talk about the sleeping giant. That is, in, uh, in essence, what they're referring to. All of the younger Latinos who will be turning 18 or have turned 18 this year, and that number continues to grow. Um, what was what was your takeaway from, from speaking with them? They, they seemed um, somewhat optimistic and hopeful about the process, um, but they were also pretty aware of what the challenges still are ahead of them. We talked to three uh, young Latinos, two of whom are eligible to vote, one of whom is not because they are undocumented. My name is Juan Mireles Palomar. I'm a 22-year-old undocumented immigrant. My name is Antonio Villasenor Baca. I'm 24, and I'm, a, I'm an MFA student at the University of Texas at El Paso. Hi, my name is Kelsey Hernandez. I'm an 18-year-old Chicanx first-time voter. All three of them are still very much involved in this political cycle, um, whether they are able to cast a ballot or not able to cast a ballot. And I found that just really interesting. But I think part of it is, if we look back, you know, from the 2016 election till today, about 3 million, a little bit over 3 million um, Latinos have become eligible to vote. And so that number, these are just a, a very tiny percentage of that number. But that in the past three years, what we've seen in terms of natural disasters, in terms of climate change, in terms of the, the tone, the political rhetoric and how that's changed. And, and let's not forget that this is a president who began his presidential campaign by immediately calling out uh, Mexicans who were coming across the border to the United States by insulting them. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. 
They're sending people that have lots of problems. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. They are not our friend. Believe me. This is the backdrop for which these young people have witnessed, you know, over the past three, three and a half years. The current administration right now um, has had rhetoric, has had policies that have directly affected us and, and, and the daily life on the, on the border. And so that's kind of the focus and why people are kind of going out and, and, and hitting the voting polls. I don't think this group has any other choice but to be politically engaged in some way, shape or form. And that's what we heard from these young people. We've seen this racism and continued violence from authorities for so long. And now that we as the new generation, you know, a lot of us are first time voters. And now we're able to have our voices heard, especially in, you know, the Latino community, because many of our parents, you know, are undocumented. Um, and, you know, they never had the chance to have their voices heard, but now we do as their children. We talked a lot about DACA and where that stands. And that's something that President Trump, you know, sort of, you know, tried to gut at one point or said we wouldn't start to accept more DACA recipients, right? And yet they present a large percentage of the young um Latino population. And then you also have people who are undocumented, as I mentioned earlier, who won't be able to cast a vote, but whose experience in the United States and and whose parents' experience in the United States has been vastly changed over the course of the past three and a half years in terms of increased surveillance and just fear. As someone who can't vote, um, my biggest thing has always been to try and shed as much light on the issues as possible and have knowledge of the issues uh, spread out to as many people as um, it can. I feel like um, many people who do vote um, don't think about the community who can't vote, which is here in the United States, the undocumented community um, being 12 million people. This is a very different um, landscape than what we saw just, you know, just four years ago before this administration. I know you're totally right. And, you know, political science tells us that the era that you grew up in, like right around the the time you came of voting age, that really shapes your opinions of politics throughout your entire life. Right. And I think it's somewhat um, you think about I'm trying to remember what it felt like to be turning 18 and, and seeing all of this happen, because I'm a Gen Xer, right? And, and, and seeing all the things happen around you. We're proud Gen Xers. Yes, we are. We're proud, proud Gen Xers. <laughs> Always carry the mental. Um, but think about just how, you know, the things that we were growing up with and the things that I remember being confronted with were largely, you know, the era of mass incarceration and, and, and drug use and um, in that era of Reagan and, uh, you know, Russia being the bad guy. But here, the, the whole thing has been flipped on its head. And I think a lot of young people today, you know, more power to them, the fact that they haven't felt hopeless or, or are not allowing a hopelessness to take over. And I think a lot of them feel like the only chance they have to do something is at the ballot box. Tanzina Vega, this was so fun. Thank, Thank you. you for taking this time. Always a pleasure, Amy. Tanzina Vega is host of The Takeaway. That's all for us today. 
Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob and Lydia McMullen-Laird are our associate producers. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jake Cowett is our director and sound designer. Vince Fairchild is our board op and engineer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Tanzina Vega is back on Monday. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. The Takeaway.